There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello, everybody, and welcome to TGP... I'm sorry about this folks, bear with me. Look, can you not keep the nose down please? I'm trying to record a podcast here. Thank you. Sorry about that folks, I've got workmen in and they're renovating the place and they're just causing mayhem everywhere. Uh, where was I? Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. On the other fader should be John Berger. How you doing, sir? Will you please tell them to quit that infernal noise? I think they've got the message, so I gave them a bit of a grilling, but uh, there you go. How's things been for you? They've been. You know, the 3D printing continues. Now, there's one thing I wanted to uh, go over with you. What was this all about? This is from Widescreen John, a.k.a. John Bigger. Hello, my friend. Oh, my God. He did an <gasps> inner life Prisma Angstrom. And he has done a lot of weapon replicas. And I have the Vacar Heck sitting in my office. I have the uh, Lex Prime. You have the Lex Prime. And it is, they are just so top tier. It comes with Tenogon. 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 Goes to Tenocon and he brings them, and for some reason he gives them to us. I don't know why you'd give them away there. I know. White Screen John is a gem and is the heart and soul of a lot of the most wholesome content. So we love you, White Screen John. We love you, White Screen John, and we love the IRL Prisma Angstrom. White Screen John is my Twitter handle, and that's how I interact a lot with the folks up at Digital Extremes. Who the, uh, they're the people who do Warframe. And one of the things that I've done with my 3D printing over the past few years is I've made Warframe weapons, Warframe props, and brought them up there and, and so on and so forth. So I showed them my latest one, which is a, a rocket launching pistol called, called a Prisma Angstrom. And every week they have what's called prime time. It's uh, Thursday nights at uh, 7 o'clock Eastern time. So that'd be what, midnight GMT, I think? Uh, about that, yeah, yeah. And they'll they'll do different things. They'll talk about what's coming up in the game. They'll uh, play some of the game just for fun, and then they'll have what is their their fan art section. And normally, their fan art involves drawings that people have done revolving around Warframe and you know uh, characters and so forth. And I figured, well, you know, what the hell? Mine's not a drawing, but it's no less art. You know, sculpture is art, so. I posted it up and uh, posted it up on Reddit too, where it went crazy. And so I said, all right, this is Warframe fan art. And they decided to include it on that Thursday stream. So I had my 90 seconds of fame. <laughs> but it's really cool that you get recognized and, um, you know, people appreciate what you do. Yeah. The two that you heard were uh, Reb Ford and Megan Everett, who are, you know, they're the two uh, leaders of their community team, really. Like Reb, she covers a lot more than that, but Megan mostly is the Xbox team. And But we're on a first-name basis because I've seen them at PAX East several times. I've seen them at the last two Tenocons. So, you know, they know me. I know them, all that. So it, it's always nice that to, you know, to do stuff like that, and they know what I do. Cause I, you know, like they mentioned, Megan has the Vacor Heck that I gave to her last year. 
which was wonderful because she didn't expect that. The Vacor Heck is a quad barrel shotgun. And the one that I made was roughly 36 inches long, so pretty much a meter long and change, I guess. And uh, it weighed just over six pounds, so what would that be, two and a half kilograms, something like that? Yeah, about that. It was a monstrous beast. I guess they just expected me to go up there and let them see it and hold it and so forth. Meg did not expect me to hand it over to her at the end of Tenocon. That was... <laughs> That went over very well once the shock over, yes, I am giving this to you, finally wore off. Yeah, they know who I am, it's, and it's all good. And, and it was a bit of a shock for you last time, because the, the pistols that you made ended up in one of their like, museum yeah, pieces. Yeah, that, that I had totally there. forgot that I gave them, uh, th that's what Reb was saying, that she has the one Lex Prime, which is a pistol. I'd totally forgotten that the year before I cleaned it up and mailed one up to her. And next thing I know, it's it's in their Warframe museum. And I'm like, oh, well, I know where they printed that off. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's my Twitter handle underneath. Oh, I did send this to them. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. That's awesome. And they gave me my 90 seconds of fame. I'm surprised you, you latched onto that one, though. Yeah, I actually saw it as one of your posts, I think. And th there was two parts to that uh, recording. And what I'll do is the whole section of that recording, I will put in the show notes so you can actually see what they were actually talking about they had fun with it for the second half yeah now on a serious note um alan taylor shearer who is a, a a dear friend of the podcast and has been with the garbage pod right from the start has had a bit of ill health recently he's, and he's just today actually come out of hospital he thought he had a cold and um the, the next thing i thought when when he'd been rushed into hospital was oh my god i hope he hasn't got the virus as it turns out um he'd been coughing a lot and somehow managed to rip his esophagus oh nice yeah so he started coughing up blood obviously the worst comes to mind when things like that happen so he's just been released out of hospital today and he won't be able to do anything like podcasting or broadcasting for a while no so this is permanent damage then we don't know we've just got to wait and see he's got to rest up a little bit and uh see how it goes but we think that his voice might not be as silky as it normally is when he talks. Huh. So we can only just wish him the best of luck and health with that. Okay, anyway. Well, you can't say monthly, dude. We missed January. What's up with that? Well... We got busy. Yeah, it's it's been really busy. Um, I, I, I'm coming to that, actually. Oh, so you do have an announcement? I do. Oh, It's about time, really. Over the last few episodes, John has been busting my chops about this announcement um, regarding I've been busting your chops. These things take time. I was simply wondering if we had any updates. I, I know that it was out of your hands. Regular listeners to TGP Nominal will know that I come from Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, where the Stoke Mandeville Stadium is based, which is the spiritual home of the Paralympic movement. And it's always been involved with and a huge supporter of the disabled community. And and since I've been involved with Field of Force Day, I've wanted to bring the event to Aylesbury. So I pitched the idea to Simon in a pub. <laughs> one evening and um he was really positive about the idea so 
Then I approached my longtime friend and proprietor of Dead Universe Comics, Ian Hine, about the idea. And Ian's organised a, a few small geeky culture events in Aylesbury's Friar Square shopping mall for free comic book day in the past. And Ian was very aware of Field of Force Day because some of his regular customers and colleagues were cosplayers and were part of the comic book circuit. And as soon as I put the idea to him, he knew that it was something that between us and Dead Universe's contacts, we could make this a reality. So then we pitched our idea to Ruth Mayhew, who we've mentioned before in, in the podcast. She is Aylesbury Town Council's events coordinator who loved the idea so much that when she took the idea to one of their community committees to, to actually put it up as a, an official event, she managed to get them to partially fund the event, which was allow us to pay for a venue. After the process of finding the right venue and negotiating a price, Ian and I secured a deal with the Grange School in Aylesbury and the accessibility on that campus is second to none and the school's events team have been so accommodating to us. And we've also been talking with the Buckinghamshire Disability Service who we've had a segment on the podcast about them in the past who will help us make the event as accessible as possible. So I can officially tell you that Field of Force Day Aylesbury will take place on the 13th of June from 11am to 4pm at the Grange School in Aylesbury and tickets are available from fieldofforceday.com. The tickets will be priced at £5 each and if you are disabled and you need to bring a carer with you, your carer will be able to attend for free. Now we're working very hard at the moment to get guests um, and, and celebrities within the film and television industry involved with it. We've got activities planned and all kinds of goodies. And if you keep going to the Field of Force Day website, it will be constantly being updated within the next few weeks leading up to, or months even leading up to the event. And if you go to the front page, our mission control page of TGP Nominal, there will also be a link there too. So it's all been really hectic trying to get it to this stage. And now the fun starts getting the event to actually happen. Nice. There you go. It's all taken care of. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and I thought, well, we haven't done it for a while. Let's let's do a few news stories in the space industry. So, when we come back, that's exactly what we're going to do. We are, by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars at the speed of thought urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, usher in new discoveries. New technologies. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Mm -hmm. 
furious. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about going back to the moon, going to Mars. Firstly, I wanted to talk about building habitation on Mars. And NASA dreams of building homes for humans on Mars, but it's not an easy thing to do to pack tons of building materials and haul them all the way through space to the Red Planet. And that's why the agency is interested in alternative ideas, including the possibility of building homes made from fungi. The NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, or NIAC, program has funded research into the viability of mycoagriculture processes that could harness fungi to grow habitats for the moon and mars the concept focuses on mycelia which is a part of a fungus these tiny threads build the complex structures with extreme precision networking out a larger constructions like the roof or the underside of a mushroom the agency posted a video describing the habitat idea and showing off some of the concept art now i have that video i will put it in the show notes the habitat concept involves the three-layered dome consisting of water ice on the exterior cyanobacteria which produces oxygen and nutrients in the middle and the inner layer of mycelia which feeds and grows around the framework to create the mars home nasa said the structure would be like baked to kill the life forms providing a structural integrity and ensuring that no life contaminates mars and any microbial life that's already there will not be affected by it researchers have already experimented by creating objects using mycelia a team from Stanford and Brown universities grew a functioning stool at NASA's Amos Research Center in 2018. After two weeks of growth, the stool looked like it had been something that had been long forgotten in a refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was baked. It does look something like those pods in in, um, Alien or in Gremlins or something, but square. So it looked like something that a Borg had hatched. It's a weird-looking thing. The idea behind the Mars habitats could potentially be transferred to full Earth construction needs as well. When we design for space, we're free to experiment with new ideas and materials with much more freedom than we would do on Earth, said NIAC Myco Architecture Principal Investigator Lynn Rothschild. And then these prototypes were designed for other worlds. We can bring them back to ours as well. The research is still in its early stages, but it shows how scientists are working to expand the horizons when it comes to future off-world human habitats. That is ugly it is isn't it it doesn't look from this world no (laughs) no it doesn't you're right you're right it it does look like something that you would expect an alien creature to come bursting from it (laughs) that's nasty although i I mean at least the bricks that they show that are being made from it i mean that's actually really cool and then you've got the other side of it that they're thinking of doing as well, actually using the regolith to mix into a kind of a concrete and then 3D print houses or habitat from that mix. Yeah. Because the regolith would be perfect for stopping any of the radiation that uh, you get whilst you're up there. True, true. Although, I don't know. I'm seeing more and more scientists coming out saying, look, 
it ain't gonna happen. There's too much going against us. I'd like to stay positive, and it'd be cool to see that in our lifetime. Just there are too many people coming out saying, look, it can't happen. We're not made for Mars habitation. Maybe this will work. I don't know. Well, something that I wouldn't mind seeing is that uh, apparently there is a very, 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 very small chance that we might get to see a supernova in our lifetime. Because it looks like Betelgeuse, which is... Well, it's a very close star. It's only about 650 light years away. It's currently uh, Orion's shoulder. It's been dimming significantly more than it has in the past, and so scientists believe that it could be on its way to a supernova. So right now, it, it is a variable star. It's known to get dimmer and brighter, but it's been continuing to dim as of late. Right now, its magnitude has gone past 1.56, and it's getting dimmer. Uh, if you're not familiar with the whole magnitude, the way they count it is that the lower the number, even into the negatives, the brighter it is. So, for example, if you see that the ISS is going to be overhead at a magnitude of minus 3, guaranteed you're going to be able to see the space station, because it's going to be ridiculously bright. But now at 1.56, it's getting dimmer and dimmer, and they're not sure why. Haven't they said that it's kind of changing shape as well? It's changing its shape as well, yes. So it's bulging. <laughs> now, it has also been sending off a whole bunch of uh, dust and debris from the surface. But, again, they, they don't know why. And it's just a big waiting game now. Now, granted, it's been on a, a course for a supernova anyway, but it could be anywhere between now and 100,000 years from now. That's why it's really not much of a chance of us seeing it, although it is possible. Normally, it's the 11th brightest star in the sky. As of right now, it's down to the 24th brightest. Wow, that much of a difference. It's, gone down, it's dimmed down to 38% of its usual brightness. Not that it's gone down 38%, it's gone down to 38%. And who knows, it may have already gone, but we won't know about it for a little while. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, 600, that's true, yeah, it might already have disappeared. But uh, I can imagine what uh, kind of a nebula that would leave, too. But if that goes, then chances are we're going to have enough light to make it seem like daylight for 24 hours a day for almost a week. Wow. It's so close, and it's, it's a red giant. Mm -hmm. So if it goes... It's going to be really bright. And one of our honorary crew members, Mark McCorcoran from the European Space Agency, he actually got a couple of these photographs, and I think they were sort of like spaced out between them. Yeah. And he's, he's made them into a, into a GIF and put them together, and um, you can see the differences. It, it, oh, it, yeah. it flashes. It's and if you look at it, the latest one that I saw from uh, December, the lower half of it is significantly darker than the upper half. Now that could be as a result of dust that was kicked off, but still, it, if it is dust, it's kicked off enough to obliterate that much light from its lower half. Fortunately, because it is so close, it can be seen very clearly, you know, as clearly as you can see something 650 light years away. But yeah, I mean, they can see that it's bulging, they can see that it's darkening. And in case anyone doesn't realize how big a red giant is, basically its size is the same as Jupiter's orbit. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it's... Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, again, we have no idea if it's, or if we are going to see an explosion anytime soon. But the fact is, it's dimmer than we've seen in modern memory. 
So take a look in, take a look outside now and, and take a look at Orion's shoulder. It might not be that way in a few thousand years. Kelt 9B, that's K-E-L-T 9B, is an ultra-hot Jupiter-class exoplanet, and it orbits so close to its star that dayside temperatures reach a scorching 4,300 degrees Celsius. That's 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, this is hotter than the surface of many stars, and the extreme temperatures a record amongst the known exoplanets are enough to tear apart the molecules making up its atmosphere. A team of astronomers using the Spitzer Space Telescope have found evidence that hydrogen gas is torn apart on the side of Kelt 9b that's facing its host star. The molecules reassemble on a slightly cooler night side only to be ripped apart all over again when the material circulates back round to the day side. KELT-9b was first detected in 2017 using the Kilo Degree Extremely Little Telescope, or KELT, hence why it's called KELT-9b. And this system was made up of two robotic telescopes in southern Arizona and South Africa. The researchers used a spitzer to obtain temperature profiles. The data show KELT-9b orbits its star every 1.5 days and is tidally locked, meaning one side of the planet is constantly facing the sun, just like it is with our moon. We only get to see one side of that unless we fly something around it like the LRO. (laughs) Gas and heat, however, flow from one side of it to the other side The best fit between computer models and the Spitzer observations indicate hydrogen molecules are torn apart on the day side and reassembled in the process known as deassociation and recombination. Why don't they just say split up and put back together again? (laughs) Because it's not scientific enough. (laughs) (laughs) What other explanation is there? If you don't account for the hydrogen deassociation, you will get really fast winds of 60 kilometers or 37 miles per second. That's probably not likely. <laughs> mm. That's fast. You, you talking about that kind of reminds me of that Star Trek episode, Trouble with Tribbles, where uh, Spock talks about how Tribbles, um, outside of their natural habitat, because they have no natural predators outside of their environment, they're multiplicative proclivities have no restraining factor (laughs) (laughs) I think I got that right it's been a while since I've seen that (laughs) Spitzer unfortunately is no more it has ceased to be it has expired and gone to meet its make okay not really it's not quite dead (laughs) it's not pining for the fields (laughs) um I think it's getting better. No, anyway. So, <laughs> now, Spitzer Space Telescope has... It hasn't been shut down. It's been placed into a safe mode, so it no longer is performing any kind of science. This occurred a couple of weeks ago, after more than 16 years of looking at the universe in infrared light. So it was launched in 2003, and it was one of NASA's four great observatories, as they call it, which includes the Hubble, of course, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. Spitzer focused primarily on infrared, and that's obviously what the James Webb Space Telescope is supposed to be handling. 
I mean, it studied comets, asteroids. It found a previously unidentified ring around Saturn. It studied star and planet formations, evolution of galaxies, composition of interstellar dust. It's done a whole bunch of different science. But back in 2016, after reviewing the various missions, NASA made a decision to close it out back in 2018 because of the James Webb Telescope. Obviously, we know of issues regarding James Webb, and we've got something about that later. So they decided Spitzer was given an extension to continue on. But now, unfortunately, it's gotten to the point where it costs more money to run Spitzer than the science that they get out of it. So they've decided to, again, I don't want to say shut it down. They've put it into a safe mode. If they need to turn it back on again, they still can. So it's not, it's not quite dead, hence that reference. But, I mean, its prime mission actually ended back in 2009 uh, when it exhausted its supply of liquid helium that was necessary for a coolant for two, two of its three instruments. But they were able to keep their infrared array camera up and running, and that's what's been doing the science since then. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, even though it's gone on for ten and a half years beyond what it was designed to do it's no longer feasible to keep going James Webb should be up in uh, two years or less should so they decided to shut it down now the good thing is all of Spitzer's data is available for free and it's available to the public in the Spitzer data archive which is awesome I do like the way that NASA do release a lot of this data for for most of the programs after they become defunct. Well, no, I mean, I mean that stuff is generally available anyway. I mean, keep in mind, NASA is primarily taxpayer-funded, so as such, it belongs to the American public, so they're supposed to make that stuff available for free anyway. Because, hey, at me as a taxpayer, I've already paid for it. Mm-hmm. So, no, they've been pretty good with yeah. that, though. So, James Webb... <laughs> I might as well go on to it. Yeah, might as well. And strangely, is the next story that I've got on my list. So, a report by the US Government Accountability Office on January the 28th concluded that it was unlikely that NASA's James Webb Space Telescope will launch on schedule, which is supposed to be March next year, I think, uh, with a delay of several months being possible. The report from the Accountability Office was the latest in an annual series on the progress NASA is making on the flagship Space Observatory, and it argued that the high consumption of schedule reverse in the first half of 2019 means that the current date for launch of March 2021 may not be feasible given the work remaining before the launch. I love that term, schedule reverse. Yeah, high consumption of schedule reverse? Really? I think I would have preferred that be an acronym. (laughs) What a dumb phrase. (laughs) The report noted that the program performed an update joint confidence level analysis of the mission's cost in schedule October. They do like using terminology that is, I find, a bit alien. (laughs) 
I think Yoda would have trouble uh, <laughs> putting this together. Yeah. Because of the schedule delays revolting, uh, revolting, resulting from technical challenges coupled with the remaining risks faced by the project, the analysis assessed only a 12% confidence level for the project's ability to meet the March 21 launch readiness date. The mission usually sets cost and schedule estimates that are 70% confidence level. So from 70 to 12, that doesn't seem positive at all. Using that metric, the launch would likely to take place in July 2021, a delay of four months, according to the report. Now, that doesn't sound too bad as long as it stays that way. Yeah. Now, there was one thing when I went through this. I mean, this this was announced at a town hall meeting during the American Astronomical Society's conference in Honolulu. Now, come on. (laughs) Just happened to be Honolulu, you mean? (laughs) Is that what you're upset about? Yeah. (laughs) And it said that all this was done by Greg Robinson, the James Webb Space Telescope Program Director. So since this has been going on, and when we know Eric Smith as the the Program Director at NASA headquarters for James Webb Space Telescope, and we spoke to him uh, a couple of years ago now regarding this, and now we have another... program director since then i mean will there be another one before it actually gets launched <laughs> but i mean in oh. fairness a lot of its delays also have come from issues during testing mm-hmm. you know i mean it was 2018 i think some screws and stuff came loose didn't they also get a tear in their sun shield yeah it was during a shake yeah. test wasn't it you know so they did that um I think the latest one was that a piece of hardware meant to keep the telescope cool had a problem. That's kind of critical, you know, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Granted, where it's going to be going is going to be very cool because they wanted it to be as far out from any heat as possible. But, um, yeah, it's still got to get through to that point. (laughs) Yeah, but apparently one of the big problems with space is heat dissipation. Oh, right, yeah. I never really figure space is so cold, but because it's a vacuum, it's actually Mm -hmm. difficult for things to get rid of their heat. I I wasn't aware of that. Did you ever see Because Science? Have you ever watched that series? Um, I have seen, yes, I have, yes. I, I love his stuff. He is funny. I love watching his stuff, but he was saying, yeah, if we ever get into starship battles, the real difficulty is going to be making sure you don't cook yourselves during the battle. <laughs> it's like, wow, I never really you know, took that into account. So, yeah, not being able to keep it cool in space, yeah, could be an issue. Well, plus, it's also going to have the heat from the sun directly hitting it mm-hmm. so and as eric said to us and we, we mention it pretty much every time we mention james Webb space telescope is the engineers like to test things yep. to the max and they would just carry on testing unless you sort of like slap their wrist and say no nope, stop now <laughs> yeah, I remember that. but i mean in fairness though at this point it's too big to fail i mean it, mm-hmm. it's going to be the most powerful space telescope ever and the size of it is... How big is that mirror? I'm trying to remember. Isn't it like nine meters? It's about that sort of size, yeah. Something like it's that. It's huge. Oh, wait, no, here it is. 21 feet or 6.5 meters. Still, yeah, that, that's Yeah, even massive. so, it's still huge. So, 
it, it's too big to fail at this point. They've got to just keep dumping money into it. Plus, there, there's too much science waiting for it. One of the most complex way of folding a mirror as well, because they were comparing it to origami, weren't yeah. they? It's... Yeah, because it's got to fit on a rocket. Yeah, it's got to fit in the in the fairings of an Ariane. Mm-hmm. So, uh... yeah, yeah, I, I will. As an American taxpayer, I will reluctantly take this burden on to get that thing up up there. Because we need it at this point. I mean, to be honest with you, I've been talking about this. Well, we've been talking about it ever since the podcast started. And uh, even before the podcast started, when I did the first episode of TGP Nominal, which was at the National Space Centre in Leicester, I was even talking about it then, and we were moaning about the delays that had already happened then, (laughs) and that was in 2014. Oh, my God. That's crazy. (laughs) That is crazy to think that we've been doing this for that long. Yeah. Man, time flies when you get old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully, hopefully next year it'll get up there. It'll work as expected. We'll see. All we can do is wait. Astronauts on board the International Space Station have baked chocolate chip cookies from raw ingredients for the first time, although no one has yet to taste them. The best cookies required, get this, two hours of baking time on the International Space Station. It takes just under 20 minutes to do it here on Earth. And as I say, how do they taste? Well, no one knows. They are still sealed in individual baking pouches and packed in their spaceflight container. The cookies remain frozen in a Houston area lab after splashing down two weeks ago. That's going to be about three weeks ago now in a SpaceX capsule. They were the first food baked in space from raw ingredients. The makers of the oven expected a difference in baking time, but not that big. (laughs) There's still a lot to look into to figure out what's really driving that difference, but it's definitely a cool result, said Mary Murphy, a manager for the Texas-based NanoRacks. Overall, I think it's pretty awesome as a first experiment. Located near NASA's Johnson Space Center, NanoRacks designed and built a small electric test oven that was launched to the space station last November. Five frozen raw cookies were already up there. Luca Parmitano, the Italian astronaut, was a master baker in December and he was radioing down a description as he baked them one by one in the prototype zero G oven. Now that must have been an unusual kind of cookery show. <laughs> but the first of its kind, I guess. Yeah. The the first cookie in an oven for twenty five minutes at three hundred degrees Fahrenheit or one hundred and forty nine degrees Celsius ended up seriously underbaked. He more than doubled the baking time for the next two, and the results were a little bit meh. <laughs> the fourth cookie stayed in the oven for two hours, and finally they had some success. So this time, I did see some browning, said Parmitano as he radioed in. I can't tell you whether it's cooked all the way or not, but it certainly doesn't look like cookie dough anymore. He then cranked the oven up to the maximum, 325 degrees Fahrenheit, 163 degrees Celsius, for the fifth cookie, and baked it for 130 minutes. He reported more success. Additional testing is required to determine whether the three return cookies are safe to eat. As for the aroma, well, 
they could smell cookies when they removed them from the oven except for the first one of course because that was still cookie dough and that's the beauty of baking in space according to Mike Massimino former NASA astronaut he now teaches at the Columbia University and is a paid spokesman for the Double Tree by Hilton a hotel chain that provided the cookie dough Hmm. the same kind used for cookies offered to hotel guests and now it's offering one of the space based cookies to the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum for their display. Okay, that's at least cool. But somebody needs to eat one or wants to see if it tastes any good. What was what is so different about baking in space that it took so long? Yeah. And I want to know, obviously it's going to be, need to be a special kind of cookie dough that doesn't crumble. Right. Because obviously that's the last thing you need yeah, in space. That's true. Um, NanoRacks and Zero G Kitchen, a, a New York City startup that collaborated with the experiment, are considering more experiments for the orbit in oven and possibly some more appliances. What's in orbit now are essentially food warmers, mm-hmm. and uh, there's some added bonus of having a freshly baked cookies in space. When they actually did it, was obviously mentioned that it was done in December. A message was sent down, strangely by Christina Cook. <laughs> we made space cookies and milk for Santa this year, she said. <laughs> That is quite cool. I mean, we, we have mentioned it before that they were contemplating making some kind of oven so that they could make bread mm-hmm. in space. And what with the espresso machine that they've got up there as well. Yeah. I mean, hey, yeah, be able to get, like, um, croissants is not a good idea because they're quite flaky. But uh, something that you could have with coffee would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And they're going to have to do something like that. I mean, they're going to have to figure out how... Should we get to Mars that they can grow their own stuff and make it? Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen about, you know, getting supplies up there. That's not even a Mars thing. That's a moon thing. What if we, you know, do the moon first? Yeah. And not only that, I mean, if they are doing long distance transportation, then you you want something you can do. Yeah. And, you know, if you can make stuff and um, grow stuff, it takes your mind off things, gets rid of the boredom. Yeah, that's true. But there's always a chance that, you know, a, a resupply mission isn't going to make it. Sort of like how Boeing found that out on back in December, I think. Mm-hmm. Starliner, <laughs> nice little software failure, and it never got to the space station. Yeah. Yeah. Boeing seems to be having issues with software problems on their flight vehicles. We're not going to go down that road, though. All I know is when it comes to cookies, it's killing me because we've still got a month over here before Girl Scout cookies get released in my area. <laughs> And that's killing me. <laughs> so you'll be getting your, your Girl Scout cookies and, and, and your shamrock shakes. Oh, I'm already doing the shamrock shakes. Those came out this past week. And I didn't even <laughs> know it. I, I was on my way to my second job, and I was going to get something to eat. I was like, oh, they're here! So, yeah, my shamrock shakes are already out. But Girl Scout cookies aren't going to be in until the 13th in this area. That's, I, will, I will buy them. I will buy many, many boxes of it. I will freeze most of them. That's what I do. And then just enjoy them throughout the year. So their cookies are fantastic frozen. That's one thing I have never, ever had. I've never had Girl Scouts cookies because we don't, don't get, get them, them over, over there. here. <laughs> but I've never been in the States when they are available. So, so good. I've never tried Actually, them. there are some commercial products that are really close approximations. I mean, I think you get Keebler and Nabisco and stuff over there, right? Yeah. 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 There are a couple of Keebler things out there that are generally considered to be very close approximations. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just a thing over here. What can I say? 
Actually, Nabisco over here is actually called Serial Partners. So, uh, yeah, what? it's still the same company. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they're still there, actually. They, they weren't that far down the road from here because I used to work from a company that used to produce packaging machinery mm-hmm. for all kinds of trade. And I actually visited their factory once. And, uh, yeah, so they're not far from here. Serial Partners? Or we used to call it a CPW, Serial Partners Welling Garden City. Oh, that is a joint venture between General Mills and Nestle. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, never heard of it. Well, you learn something new every day. That's what we try to do on TGP Nominal. We attempt to entertain (laughs) and inform. Too bad we usually do more informing than entertaining. (laughs) Edutainment. Love it. We can get a little bit of a Star Wars reference with this one. NASA's test mission has uncovered its first world with two stars. My friend, we have located Tatooine. (laughs) (laughs) So this was back in 2019. And actually, this was discovered by a high school student from New York. Oh, wow. Kid named Wolf Kukier, or Kukier, I'm not sure, finished his junior year at Scarsdale High School in New York when he went down to Goddard Space Flight Center in in Maryland for a summer intern, and his job was to examine variations in star brightness that was captured by the TESS satellite, (sighs) Transitioning Exoplanet Survey Satellite, seeing as how it has to be an acronym, of course, (laughs) and uh, it was uploaded to the Planet Hunters Citizen Science Project. And he said, I was looking through the data for everything the volunteers had flagged as an eclipsing binary, which is a system where two stars circle around each other and, from our view, eclipse each other every orbit. About three days into my internship, I saw a signal from a system called TOI-1338. At first, I thought it was a stellar eclipse, but the timing was wrong. It turned out to be a planet. It's called TOI-1338b, TOI being a test object of interest. 1338b is the first circumbinary planet, which is a world orbiting two stars. Hello, Tatooine. <laughs> so right now it, it lies, well, not right now, but it will, it, it does lie 1,300 light years away in the constellation Pictor. Is that a southern hemisphere thing? I'm not familiar with Pictor. I've heard of it. I think you might be right there. Yeah, that's got to be southern hemisphere. The two stars orbit each other every 15 days. One is about 10% bigger than our sun, while the other is cooler and is only one-third of the mass of our sun. Now, TESS has four cameras, each of which take a full-frame image of a patch of the sky every 30 minutes for 27 days. And then they use those observations to generate graphs of brightness and, and how stars change over time. And obviously, when it comes to planets, they help to detect that because... If the star dims on a regular basis, chances are it's because a planet is going in front of it, from our perspective. Because of this one, the transits are actually irregular, going between 93 and 95 days, and they vary in depth because, well, one star is much brighter than the other, so you can't really see the effect of the smaller one getting in front of the bigger one, because, well, the bigger one is so much bigger. But uh, in this case, this is something that algorithms have a problem with, which is why they haven't really been able to run it through any computer programs. We as humans, though, are really, really good at finding patterns and stuff like that. And we can see things that computer algorithms necessarily can't. So especially when it comes to things like this that aren't on a regular pattern. So he simply was looking through these things to try to determine any patterns that he could see or or any transit issues. And that's when he came upon this whole thing about seeing these dips in brightness that were out of sync with what it should have been. And that's how he helped to identify that it was a planet 
orbiting these two stars. That's awesome, isn't it? For as good as computers are, they're only as good as we can program them. And this is why some of these crowd science projects are fantastic. Just your average Joe can look at an area in space and go, right, there's something amiss here. Send their findings into whoever it is is organizing these programs. And yeah, sure enough, you've discovered something yep. and you get to name it. <laughs> well, in this case, they're just simply calling it TOI-1338B. But mm-hmm. uh, one other little interesting bit is that once that was found, they, of course, needed to verify it and so forth. And what they used was a software package called Eleanor, which is named after Eleanor Arroway, who was the central character in Carl Sagan's novel Contact. Wow. And they used that to confirm that the transits were real and not a result of any kind of uh, artifacting. So if you're not now picturing in your mind Luke overlooking the binary star system with his theme music playing, I'm very disappointed in you. NASA announced on February the 12th that it was seeking to boost its astronaut core. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said on Twitter, We're celebrating our 20th year of continuous presence on board the International Space Station in low Earth orbit this year, and we're on the verge of sending the first woman and next man to the moon. For the handful of highly talented women and men, it's an incredible time to be in human spaceflight and to be an astronaut. We're asking all eligible Americans if they have what it takes to apply beginning the 2nd of March. You can apply for the position at uh, www.usajobs.gov and for more information, have a look at our show notes. The requirements to apply would be a master's degree in science or engineering or maths, obviously STEM. It can also be met by being two years into a STEM PhD or being a test pilot, which is one of the most well-known paths to become an astronaut. You can have a medical degree in osteopathic medicine. That also works. The candidates will need at least two years professional experience or, or in the case of pilots, 1,000 hours of pilot in-command time. And for the first time ever, the candidates will be asked to complete an online test, which will take two hours. NASA expects to select the next class by mid-2021 and the candidates will then embark on a two-year training program at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. It will include classes in spacewalking at NASA's underwater neutral buoyancy lab, robotics, systems of International Space Station, pilots in the T-38 training jet, Russian language lessons and the building blocks of the Artemis program. The privileged few will join the 500 or so people who have ventured into space as NASA looks to resume sending US astronauts to the International Space Station on private US rockets to go back to the moon and head to Mars in the 2030s. Traditionally, about half the new recruits have come from the military, especially test pilots who flew dangerous experimental aircraft, including the likes of Alan Shepard, the first American in space, and Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. And the pay for civilian candidates? Well, it starts at the 11th grade for federal workers at $53,800 and goes up to $70,000. And I will tell you one thing, that TGP nominal honorary crew member Ryan Kobrak is actually applying to be an astronaut when it comes to March the 2nd. And he's also on the list to be a Canadian astronaut too. 
Nice. He's got what it takes. I give him that. So he's got the right stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I had to. So yeah, it's uh, it's that time again, isn't it? I mean, I, I can remember us talking about the candidates that got picked from the eighteen thousand last time. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan has been joking about it because he, he did submit a few applications last time round because he kept updating his application, and he said that that's probably why there was eighteen thousand rather than six thousand the last time round. It's probably due to his applications that he was trying to put through. <laughs> He's got a dream, clearly. <laughs> Universe's mysteries just got a little bit stranger. You've heard of fast radio bursts? Yep. Well, we really don't know what they're from. We think we know, but what's odd about them is that they've likely been happening for millennia, you know, billions of years. We've only started to discover them in 2007. We've only detected a few of them since then. And it, it hasn't been until June of, of last year that we finally tracked one of those to its home galaxy. So we don't know what causes them. They're ridiculously rare. Obviously, they're coming from you know billions of light years across space. So scientists think that it might have to do with you know, big cataclysmic events like uh, supernova or star collisions or something like that, but they don't know. Well, because it's rare, obviously it's difficult to detect and study, but they just found one that repeats itself every 16 days. So, here we go. The Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, CHIME, first spotted this. Now, get this one. This fast radio burst is called FRB 180916.J0158 plus 65. An easy one to remember. Sure, it's just like that telephone number from the IT crowd. 0118999881999719725. So they published a paper last month in Journal Nature that reanalyzed old data and so forth. And they did trace this one back to a relatively nearby spiral galaxy, although they don't say which one it is. They found that it goes through four-day cycles of regular activity, and it sends out radio waves into space on an almost hourly basis. Then it goes into 12 days of silence, and then it goes back to four days, and then it goes back to 12 days of silence. And it's, they've received some anomalies. Uh, in one point, it let out a single burst in that four-day period instead of you know being, going on for four days. They have no idea what this means or why this one is so regular as compared to others. So they say that patterns tend to indicate rotation, but no one knows if this has anything to do with fast radio bursts or not. Extraterrestrial communication? Doubt it. Really, really doubt it. But nonetheless, it's a mystery in space that just got a little bit weirder. Could it be something like that? thing that they detected and it only seemed to be at certain times they picked up this frequency they weren't too sure what it was 
And I did all this research, and it turns out to be somebody using the microwave during lunch oh, break. About that. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's now happening pretty regularly. What would cause that kind of regularity? I mean, I would assume that they would have ruled out satellites, things like that. I certainly am not of, uh, you know, the kind of intelligence to be able to make an educated guess on this. And I, I'm, I'm all for healthy skepticism. You know, maybe it, instead of a microwave, it could be, who knows, somebody's shortwave radio went on the fritz. I don't know. Mm. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it's one of those mysteries that just got a little weirder. But on the other hand, now that we're getting more of them so that they're not as uncommon, maybe that'll help to make it that much you know, sooner to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The Royal Mail has released a stellar collection of stamps and souvenirs celebrating the UK's contribution to unlocking the secrets of the stars. The collection is called Visions of the Universe and was created to commemorate the Royal Astronomical Society's 200th anniversary. The eight stamps feature stunning images depicting astronomical features and phenomena, including the Cat's Eye Nebula, Enceladus, pulsars, black holes, Jupiter's auroras, gravitational lensing, Comet 67P, and the Cygnus A galaxy. As part of the collection, the Royal Mail and the Royal Mint have teamed up to release a set of stamps on a limited edition cover that commemorates Professor Stephen Hawking's long lifetime achievement and commitment into enhancing our understanding of the origins and secrets of our universe which contains a 50 pence coin specially struck in his honour. Now these coins are not in circulation and the set is limited to 7,000. I ordered one of these and it was postmarked and arrived on the day of release and the nice little touch was the envelope was franked in Cambridge where Stephen Hawking lived and conducted his research. Nice. So yeah, that's another one of my pride of place things because I wanted the, the 50 pence anyway and then I saw these stamps and I thought, oh, they're nice. <laughs> Which do I go for? And then I found out you can buy them as a set together. I was like, take my money now. <laughs> Oh, speaking of taking my money, have you bought the Lego ISS yet? No, I haven't. I will be, for sure. Yeah, I know a lot of people that have already got them. Ross is on the brink of getting one. It's a nice little set. I was looking at the Lego Ideas website and just narrowly missing out of getting made in the next selection. It might go on to one of the future ones. Was a very good representation of Space Shuttle Atlantis. Ooh, I missed that one. I was hoping it was going to be Discovery. Well, I mean, well let's... Fa- now, wait a minute. Let's face it. They could simply make the name its own Lego brick, and then you could replace it with any one of them. Really. Yeah, this is true. I mean, there are slight differences to all the fleet, but to your average Joe, you're not really going to notice oh, the no, differences. No, no. As you know, Discovery was always my favorite yeah. of the fleet. And, um, yeah, it would not be nice to have a little model discovery <laughs> they are coming out with some really nice space related stuff I mean I know you've got a couple of them there my Saturn V is sitting right here on my desk my poor uh, lunar landing is still unopened oh right I've been too busy doing stuff oh wow 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 I just looked at the Atlantis that's really nice 
isn't it? That is really... <laughs> and it just missed out. It just missed out. But some of the ones that have made it this time were not space-related, but they are so good, um, the detail on the stuff. But it doesn't mean to say it's not going to get made sure. because it could come around on the next batch. That is really nice. Open and close the doors and nice display stand. Hmm. I do kind of wish that made it. Yeah, I would have definitely have got that. Yeah. <laughs> Because well, you and I are both the same, the way we, we feel about that bird. Yeah. Uh, I understand why they had to decommission her, but... Uh-huh. The, the most complex spacecraft of its time. And there won't be anything else like it. Well, I'll yeah. say that. No, there won't be. There won't be. I mean, they, there might be something similar, uh, Dream Chaser, you know, but it won't be quite uh, the same. No, I mean, yeah, the Dream Chaser looks a lot like it, so you and I have a little bit of an affinity for it. But mm-hmm. something like the space shuttle program, mm, I don't see that happening. No, it, it was as space missions go, very dangerous compared oh, with God, yeah. the, the stuff that's going up now is a lot safer than the space shuttle was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you attach a big vessel onto two massive rockets, and once those rockets are ignited, that's it. You're done. Yeah. You know, mm. If it was done in a different way, so that the the shuttle was on top of the, yeah. the propulsion, then it could, it could have been made a lot safer. Uh, but in hindsight, you you can you can do a lot in hindsight. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's see. We can we can do something better than the tiles, and we could get better protection from you know falling ice chunks, and you know better O-ring protection. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff we can do in hindsight. Uh, and, and bits of foam coming off. Foam, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But we grew up with that as our main mm-hmm. rocket, our main way of getting into space. I mean, okay, we, we were on the, the tail end of Apollo with um, the Skylab stuff and all yeah. that, but for us, the space shuttle is what we got to see and grow up with. Yeah. And it's it's a cool-looking ship. And then Isn't to it? see it come down for a landing, you know, thinking that, wow, that's gliding. That's not flying, yeah. really, you know, because it's not powered. It's gliding. And look at that come in. Or as, as the pilots used to say, it was a flying brick. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> she did it. That's it. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, because um, uh, you know we've had these storms over here recently. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and um, I see that you guys have now taken to naming storms, too. Really? Yeah, but we don't. Uh, Dennis, I mean, come on. Come on. <laughs> I didn't know you had the weather channel over there. <laughs> Anyway. Uh, yeah, there was a plane that came in, uh, I, I think it came into Heathrow. Oh, the other I saw day, that video. And it came in sideways. Came, yeah, now that's not unusual. And I mean, pilots train for that. You just want to applaud these pilots for being able to do that. Yeah, to see those things come in at like 30 degree off center, coming in almost sideways, but yet still going mm. straight. It's, yeah, that's crazy. But it's like the pilots just kind of shrug it off, like, yeah, you know, that's what we're trained for. <laughs> we look at it like, what? So you can imagine when you were trying to bring in a space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, those things are definitely cool to watch. Can you imagine being on one of those airplanes, though, so you can actually see the runway coming toward you outside your window? And the pilot's like, don't worry, folks, we're fine, you know. <laughs> I mean, the first time I went up in a helicopter... And it banked. Through one eye, you could see the ground. And through the other eye, you could see the sky. And it's like, uh, yeah, this is not right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Good fun, though. (laughs) If you haven't seen that video, you should put a a link in the show notes. 
if you remember, yeah. to that video, so that people can see one of these landings. It's absolutely crazy. There was quite a few of them, because we had the two storms. We had the one that the, the weekend just gone, and we had one the weekend previous mm-hmm. to that. So you had the Storm Kira <laughs> on the first weekend, and Storm Dennis <laughs> on the second weekend. Spare me. It's all marketing. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, for the UK, they were strong winds. I mean, we were getting sort of 80 mile an hour winds. So wow. that was pretty strong. But there was a one night, I put it up on my Facebook timeline. Uh, there was a video of uh, a small tornado that went across the M25 and it was ripping up the road signs and blowing them across the road. Really? And. Um, I um, it was nothing like anything from Kansas or anything well, like no, that. I it think was no. quite quite small in comparison. But I made the joke of saying it's the fastest thing ever to be on the M25. To be <laughs> honest with you. <laughs> Wait, I'm I'm finding the video on this thing. That's oh yeah, you it couldn't be anything like what we have over in the plains. Oh wow, look at that. That's crazy. Can I imagine one of those road signs coming towards you yeah. when when you're on the motorway? It would be wow. And somebody caught it on their dash cam. <laughs> Amazing stuff. It was awesome to see TGP nominal honorary crew member Sue Nelson and her Space Poffins co-host Richard Hollingham involved with the live broadcast of two space launches recently. Firstly, Sue Nelson was part of the Ariane Space team as she interviewed key personnel at the OneWeb headquarters in London during a very unusual OneWeb satellite mission. Unusual because, well, OneWeb is a UK-based company whose satellites are built in Florida but commissioned Ariane Spass to conduct the launch, but instead of launching them from a Soyuz facility in French Guiana, they used Rosmacos' facilities in Kazakhstan. I think it might have been down to the fact of scheduling and things and at the time I think do you remember they had those protests and stuff outside the space centre in French Guiana and they had to delay a lot of launches there because of problems I think it might have had something to do with Mm. that so they decided to do it from Kazakhstan rather than Soyuz because you can't predict how long these things are going to go on for that makes sense. But a few days later, Richard Collingham, as who I said was uh, Sue Nelson's Space Boffins co-host, was part of the hosting team interviewing key personnel at the European Space Operations Centre, or ESOC, in um, Darmstadt, Germany, for the Solar Orbiter mission launch. And it wasn't until I saw the ESA coverage that I realised that the pin that was given to me by ESA at Space Rocks last September was actually a Solar Orbiter mission pin. How cool is that? Nice. So I was like, oh my God, I've got one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Speaking of launches, it looks like we're finally, thanks to SpaceX, going to launch astronauts from U.S. soil again. So the uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule, it arrived at the uh, Florida Space Coast on February 13th. After finally coming cross-country from the California headquarters, according to this, the spacecraft will now undergo final testing and pre-launch processing in a SpaceX facility on Cape Canaveral for the... What does it say here? Uh, That liftoff scheduled for May from launch pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center is going to send NASA astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin to the International Space Station. So finally, we no longer have to rely on uh, 
on, on Russia to send our astronauts up there. So Demo 2, as it's called, will mark the first crewed flight for the Crew Dragon and the first suborbital human space flight to lift off from American soil since the final space shuttle mission in July of 2011. So it's, up, it's been almost 10 years. So it won't be the first trip, obviously, for a Crew Dragon. They launched one that was uncrewed back in March of last year. But of course, that was the vehicle that was destroyed in April during a ground test incident. But as long as Demo 2 goes well, SpaceX will most likely be cleared to begin more you know, operational crewed missions to the ISS for NASA. So we're just going to have to see what happened with that one. Obviously, NASA has already had a, a deal with Boeing for the Starliner. Starliner has had a few issues. So it looks like right now the uh, Dragon is the most likely candidate to be sending more astronauts up to the ISS. We'll find out in May. Assuming that it's not postponed, of course. The article I've been reading is is very, uh, mm, how can I say it? It's very biased towards SpaceX when it comes to the two companies involved. If I read you what it actually says here, the space agency's public statement that SpaceX will launch astronauts first simultaneously implies bad news for Boeing and its Starliner spacecraft. Contracted under the Commercial Crew Program in 2014, Boeing and SpaceX have been working to build two separate crew launch vehicles, Starliner and Crew Dragon, with the intention of ferrying NASA astronauts to and from the International Space Station. While both providers have their own challenges, Boeing has been beset by numerous software failures borne out during the Starliner's December 2019 orbital launch Mm -hmm. debut. NASA has a fairly notorious and years-long history of going well out of its way to avoid saying or implying anything that could be perceived as slightly critical of Boeing. A prime contractor dating back to the first stage of the Saturn V rocket, Boeing has effectively secured millions of dollars of NASA's annual budget and possesses deep political sway, thanks in large to a revolving door between industry, government and the hundreds of millions of dollars it has spent on lobbying over the last two decades. Unsurprisingly, NASA, at least after the fact, is now extremely concerned by the lack of such basic and common sense level of quality control in Boeing's Starliner software pipeline. Well, okay, now wait a minute. The article's not wrong. There's a lot of politicking. Boeing is a massive company. They've got huge political sway, whereas SpaceX are just kind of out there on their own. So... Yeah, you're, you're, there's no way to avoid politics and crap like that when it comes to NASA and Boeing. They're in each other's pockets. You know, Boeing is given a pass on a lot of different things. I understand what you mean by the tone of it, but it's still not inaccurate. And Boeing has had a ridiculous amount of software failures lately. I, I think in a way, Boeing has gotten too big for their britches. They think they're indestructible. And um, that 777X failure and the Starliner issue kind of bring that to light. And then it says NASA and Boeing need to determine whether the Starliner software failures were a one-off fluke or something symptomatic of deeper problems. Due to that uncertainty and the massive amount of work that will be required to answer those questions, it's almost certain that Boeing will have to perform a second uncrewed Starliner test flight for NASA to verify that its problems have been rectified. Well, that's common sense. If something has a massive failure, you're not going to say, ah, this time it's good, trust us, just put the people on it. That makes sense. Yeah, you you just can't do that. No. And let's face it, when it comes to 
Boeing versus NASA, SpaceX is still kind of an underdog. And you always root for the underdog. I mean, what they've achieved in, what, 15 years? Oh, yeah. Probably a bit more than that now, but it's, it's amazing what they've achieved. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could easily see it, what SpaceX has done, and you could picture... Boeing and NASA executives being humiliated by it. I wouldn't read too much into that article, though. Probably, as you say, it was more of the tone of the article more than anything else. Oh, by the way, I need to correct myself. It wasn't the 777X, it was the 737 MAX. That's the one having the software Ah, issues. Okay. By the way, have you seen the video SpaceX has released of the Crew Dragon undergoing electromagnetic interference testing? No. It just looks like it's been shoved in a massive microwave. <laughs> um, it's just going round and round <laughs> and round. <laughs> Play dead or alive right now. <laughs> <laughs> the path through the solar system is a rocky road with asteroids, comets, planets and moons and all kinds of small bodies of rock, minerals, metals and ice are continually moving as they orbit the sun. In contrast to the simple diagrams we're used to seeing, our solar system is surprisingly a crowded place. Now, biologist Eleanor Lutz has painstakingly mapped out every known object in the Earth's solar system, as long as they're greater than 10,000 kilometres in diameter, that is, hopefully helping you on your next journey through space. She mapped all the orbits of over 18,000 asteroids in the solar system, including 10,000 that were at least 10 kilometres in diameter, and about 8,000 objects of unknown size. When plotting the objects, Lutz observed that the solar system was not arranged in linear distances rather than a logarithmic pattern, with more objects situated closer to the sun. What she is visualising is the pull of the sun, as the majority of the objects tend to gravitate towards the inner part of the solar system. This is the same observation that Sir Isaac Newton used to develop the concept of gravity posting that heavier objects produce a bigger gravitational pull than lighter ones. Since the Sun is the largest object in our solar system, it has the strongest gravitational pull. If the Sun is continually pulling at the planets, why don't they all fall into the Sun? Well, it's because the planets are moving sideways at the same time. Without that sideways motion, the objects would fall into the centre, and without the pull towards the centre, it would go off flying off into a, in a straight line. This explains the clustering and patterns of it in our solar systems and why the farther you travel through the solar system, the bigger the distance and the fewer the objects. While the map only shows objects greater than 10 kilometers in diameter, there are plenty of smaller objects to watch out for as well. The map is not the only visualisation that Eleanor Lutz is making. She's also processing an atlas of space to showcase her work. As we reach further and further beyond the boundaries of Earth, her work may come in handy the next time you make the wrong turn at Mars and find yourself lost in an asteroid belt. It's, it's quite an amazing piece. I'll have to put it in the show notes. There's a high-resolution version of it on there, and I'll also put a link to her other work as well. She puts so much effort into the stuff she makes. Nice. Now, have you seen that uh, image of the pale blue dot that has been recreated recently? I have. In fact, I I did have that as a list. I guess I can take that off the pile now. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That is nuts. I mean, it's, it's still the same picture, but the way they cleaned it up is really nice 
the original picture, the pale blue dot, was captured, well, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. actually, on Valentine's Day, just gone. And it was taken from a distance of about 6 billion kilometres or 4 billion miles away. To mark the anniversary, the US Space Agency has now reprocessed this iconic image using modern techniques and software. The reworking has been respectful to the original, still shows Earth as a single bright blue pixel in the vastness of space, and that pixel is caught within a ray of sunlight. But the image now looks cleaner, Mm -hmm. the Earth is easier to pick out, the pale blue dot was a part of a sequence of frames taken by Voyager before its camera system shut down. I thought that's what they intended it to do, to save power. They managed to capture that shot and it just... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. It had completed its tour of the planets and had no further use for the equipment as it headed towards interstellar space. But Carl Sagan and Carolyn Porco argued for a family portrait of the solar system before the power down command was sent. The 60 frames that Voyager returned incorporated the Sun and six of the major planets, Venus, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, Mercury, Mars and in brackets Pluto, missed out for a variety of reasons. The red planet, for example, couldn't be distinguished in the streams of sunlight bouncing around the inside of the camera. And one of the reasons the photo has become so famous was because of the popularity of one of Carl Sagan's writings. In his 1994 book, The Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space, he said, Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, 
there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only one we've ever known. It sums up perfectly the profound perspective gained from the exploration of space. Gary Hunt, the only Briton on the Voyager imaging team, says the picture is more relevant today than it's ever been and continues to display the image at lectures he gives about climate change because it shows the Earth as an isolated speck and shows how insignificant we are with the rest of the universe. Mm -hmm. This tiny blue dot is the only place we can possibly live and we're making a jolly good mess of it. Now, you can tell this guy's British just by hearing it. We're making a jolly good mess of it. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn Porco reimagined the pale blue dot with the Cassini probe in 2013, turning that spacecraft's camera backwards towards the Earth and capturing the blue pixel under the rings of Saturn. Getting a view of home is now seen as something a must-do for all far-flung missions. Well, as long as you're on the topic of Voyager 1, might as well go to Voyager 2. We almost lost Voyager 2. Yes, so I heard. Yeah, on uh, January 25th, it failed to execute a spin maneuver as intended. As a result, two of the onboard systems remained on longer than planned, and because of the energy drain, Voyager 2 shut off its science instruments. Obviously, the team members at NASA were looking at it. They showed confidence at the time that they could troubleshoot the problem. And as of February 5th, they got the science gear back up and running. According to agency officials, they said that mission operations report that Voyager 2 continues to be stable and that communications between Earth and the spacecraft are good. The spacecraft has resumed taking science data and the science teams are now evaluating the health of the instruments following their brief shutoff. Woo. (laughs) That's one of those things that's just, wow. Now, granted, I mean, it's going to die anyway. Eventually, well, I, I believe it's held with some kind of a nuclear process that keeps the instruments warm or, or some kind of process that keeps the instruments warm enough. That's going to die eventually, and it's going to be nothing but a bunch of metal flying through space. It's going to happen eventually, but still, it's one of those sentimental things. You know, it's been going on for 42 years. And don't worry, don't worry. Nothing's going to come back to haunt us afterward because that's Voyager 6. <laughs> Vigor. Yes. Yes, the the radioisotope thermoelectric generators that power Voyager are running low on juice and will likely be tapped out in the mid-2020s. So these are probably going to to be permanently down in only a few years. Uh, Still an amazing piece of kit. Both are still an amazing piece of kit. I wish... NASA would leave the rocket launches to SpaceX and the others and focus on stuff like this. I mean, as long as they fit in whatever can be launched, who cares who makes it? Yep. Look look at the rovers 
and you know Voyager one and two still going on. New Horizons, they're so good at that stuff. Cassini, mm-hmm. you know, keep doing that. Or or the uh, the submersible submarines I want to send to is a Titan or Enceladus. I don't remember now. I think they want to send them to Titan, but they were Titan. talking about and Europa as well. Yeah, gliders to Venus, the Europa Clipper. Yeah. Oh, Which well. I believe, I believe Alan Stern is involved with the Europa Clipper project. Oh, well. And did you know, I think you probably do, that Brian May is now on the European Space Agency's payroll? That does not surprise me in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I don't know what mission he's working on, but he's been um, linked to a, uh, one of their missions, which would be so cool. All right, hold on. Time for a quick Google search. Uh, asteroid deflection mission. Yeah, it's the Hera Planetary Defense Mission, it seems. wonder if he'll be doing anything stereoscopic. Oh, he posts so many but things on Instagram using a stereo camera, and they look amazing. I love it. We know the, the year that he was at Space Rocks, they had a big stand for uh, his stereoscopic mm-hmm. company, or the London Stereoscopic Company. Did you hear the inspirational message that Christina Cook made after she broke the record for the single longest space mission by a woman spending 328 days in space. I remember reading bits of it, but I don't remember the whole thing. So, this is a small piece of it, but I thought it was so inspirational that we had to include it in the show. Do what scares you. Do the things that might feel like they're just out of your reach. They're intriguing you. They're drawing you in, but you don't know for sure if you can do it. Go after that thing. Not only will you maximally impact the world, but you'll get the most personal fulfillment out of it and use that as a springboard to just keep doing the same thing. I've always said about any record that you set that my biggest hope is that it's exceeded as soon as possible. That means we're pushing the boundaries. More people are living up to their dreams and their potential. Now, the record was previously established by Peggy Whitson in 2017 when she spent 289 days in space. It's just amazing the amount of time that people spend on, you know, single missions these days. But it's got to be done. If we're going to spend any amounts of time in space, then we're going to have to practice doing it. Yeah. And we're going to need a lot more medical studies on astronauts for long-term exposure to space and so forth. There's a lot we still don't know. Okay, you've got people with medical knowledge that do go up to the space station and stuff, but I was watching one of the Royal Institution Christmas lectures one year with uh, Dr. Kevin Fong, who's an amazing guy. I'd love to get him on the show, actually. He was working with NASA for a long time, dealing with people's health matters when they were on missions and stuff and now he's an air ambulance uh, doctor Hmm. and uh, he conducted this lecture talking about right what do you need to be a doctor or an emergency first responder and all this kind of stuff and he said well this is the kind of stuff that we have in the back of our air ambulance this is what we have we have all this really cool stuff that we can preserve life and this that and the other and he's like well what do we have on the space station and it was like oh my god it's almost like a first aid kit in comparison, mm-hmm. you know. It's very basic what they've got up there. So, you know, if they did have any severe health problems, you have got an issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm going to touch wood here and say, look, I hope something doesn't happen. But, sure. you know, in the, in the 20-odd years that they've been up there now, they've never had anything major that they've had to deal with. Well, let's face it. That's kind of a roll of the dice. You know, mm-hmm. It hasn't happened yet. 
but chances are it will. Well, we're talking about human beings here, which the, the human body is very unpredictable at the best of times. Mm, yeah, really. <laughs> Even on Earth, let alone in space. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Right. Shall we wrap this thing up? I think we should. I'm sure my kids would appreciate it. <laughs> so, John, it's fantastic having you on the show once again. Uh, it's always good for you to put up with me for another month. It's, it's always good fun. Oh, 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 also, 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 PAX East. Uh, you've got that coming That's up soon. coming up the end of the month. Oh, yeah, because it's early this year. Oh, my God, I know. I mean, right now, temperatures for February have actually been mild. I'm kind of hoping it stays that way, because, I mean, Boston, if a nor'easter yeah. comes up the east co- up the east coast, yeah, we're going to be in trouble. We're still going to go, but yeah. we're going to be in trouble. I was just saying, uh, are you packing your Arctic condition? Oh, um, yeah. It's not yeah. even so much that. <laughs> it, it's just the snow that they get. They get a, When they get hit, they get hit hard up there. Yeah, I was looking at some photos that um, a friend of mine, when they were out in Buffalo one time, uh, wow. Yeah. Well, no, no, that, no <laughs> yeah. hold on. That's different. Buffalo is completely different because Buffalo gets whacked with lake effect snows. And if, if mm-hmm. you don't know, for those who don't know what that is, is Buffalo is on the eastern edge of Lake Erie. And when snowstorms come in from the west... They end up going across the Great Lakes, and they pick up more moisture, they pick up more energy, and then by the time they hit Buffalo, it is significantly larger than it was before it reached the Great Lakes. So we call those lake effect snows, and they get... Yeah, you watch videos of that? When it hits, it hits hard. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I was looking at a, uh, a football stadium there, and, and the, the, the snow just were reaching the... The bottom part mm-hmm. of the the posts, yep. and then that's quite high. <laughs> that's normal for them. They're used to that. You know, people around here might talk about, oh, it's a foot of snow. People up in Buffalo in that area, they just laugh. They're like, okay, a foot. We get a couple of inches of snow, and it's like, oh my god. Yeah. So that's different. I mean, Boston is way out from there, but the thing is, because it is along the Atlantic, if we get a nor'easter. And the reason we call it that is because it goes northeast up the coast. Mm-hmm. It's right near the ocean, so it has a tendency of picking up more moisture as it goes along. And then when it hits New England, they get trounced. So kind of hoping we don't have that for this. Just two more weeks. Let them get the blizzard of the century after PAX East. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. Are you going to try and capture some footage uh, this year? I will or? try. Well, no, you mean well, not footage is in footage. video? No, footage is video. Yeah. Uh, what would you call that? Just content? What, what is the audio equivalent of footage? Um, audio footage? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know, I've often audio interviews? Because whenever I say footage, people go, well, you're not taking video, so it's not footage. And I thought, okay, uh, yeah, so what is. do I call it? Yeah, it is. Sorry to tell you, folks. Yeah, it is. It's still footage. That'll be fun. 
and I'll probably by then have a bit more information about Field of Force Day Aylesbury as well. Cool. So every time we get a few updates, I'll put it in the podcast so people know. And, and all updates for the event will be on the Field of Force Day Facebook page. It will be on the TGP Nominal Facebook page. It will be on the Dead Universe Comics Facebook page. And it will also be on the Aylesbury Town Council's Facebook page. So there's millions of ways of finding out about it. <laughs> <laughs> and someday I'll get over there. Well, if it's popular, we're going to keep doing it. So Fine by me. So, once again, that only leaves me with one thing to say, and that's take care one and all. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Toodles, Doc. <laughs> you know you stinker. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. 